Boom, put boom, boom, side, B side, what side are you on? Welcome back to another edition of A side, B side podcast. How's it going, Adam? It is going well, Brooke. How are you? Pretty good. So, um, I told you about that show, The Vow, I've been watching. So, that mm-hmm. show that wrapped up and seduced on stars has started. And okay. that's another take. It's kind of a more in depth take from some of the female members of the actual sex part of the cult right okay so this is all about that and i don't know how to say the name nexium nexium that that was allison mack was involved with yes okay and just saw that it just came down that keith ranieri got 120 years which i don't even think is enough no i mean because he is a horrible horrible person i mean i don't know where everybody falls in the death penalty but it's it's like sometimes i'm like he deserves to die but also like he deserves to live horribly for a long time which sometimes is worse than death so i don't know how that goes like 120 years clearly he's probably not gonna last that long but hopefully he deserves to be someone's boyfriend in prison yeah he deserves a lot of things yeah he's awful i mean the man seems very twisted so i i don't know if the things that we think would be punishment would even seem like punishment to him. Right. Well, since he liked to take advantage of women, I think being taken of advantage of by a man is exactly what he needs. It would be poetic. Aside from that, just gearing up for COVID Halloween. Yeah, this weekend is going to be weird. So I read this today. Friday night is going to be a full moon. Oh, wow. Saturday is going to be Halloween. Sunday is daylight savings time. Monday, we all rest for a little bit. And then Tuesday's the election. I know. Like, this is going to be a really emotionally intense and kind of weird and potentially historic, well, definitely historic couple of days. So uh, I had this entire plan to do one thing for the A-side tonight. And then two things happened. One, I saw your post about how you were going to focus on Halloween. And I said, gosh, that makes a lot of sense since this will be coming out the day before Halloween. <laughs> and that's super timely. Uh, and maybe the thing I was thinking of doesn't have anything to do with Halloween originally. And then last night, I'm driving home after dropping my kids off and doing some grocery shopping. And I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. So St. Paul, the area where I live in the Matt Groveland area is a lot of houses that are uh, like super like like 1930s, 40s, 50s. Uh, your, your classic like sidewalks, small streets, parking on both sides. Most houses have like a garage, but maybe not a ton of space to park. So most of the cars are parked in the street. So you don't have a lot of space when you're driving. And often if you're going down what would seemingly be a two-way street, you have to pull over to the side and let somebody else go if they're coming the other direction. So I'm pulling down about a block from my house. I'm angling so I can get on my street the right way to turn into my garage because I don't want to turn illegally because I did that once and I got yelled at. So I try not to do that anymore. And I turned down the street and there is a truck with its blinkers on blocking the entire street. It happens. Somebody's unloading some stuff from the back. It's near the end of the month. Maybe somebody's moving. Who knows? So I'm waiting there. And while I'm waiting for this truck to move, these guys to finish unloading it, a black cat walks out from the left side of the street carrying a bunny in her mouth, his or her mouth. And I'm like, oh my gosh. That's crazy. That cat caught this bunny. And the bunny was like about a third as big as a cat. So this is a big bunny. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the cat stops, sees me, sees the truck, sets the bunny down, and the bunny gets up and just walks away. <laughs> and the cat the then turns and the cat turns and looks at me like, dude, if you hadn't distracted me, I was gonna get that bunny. And now I'm ticked off, so I'm just gonna sit here. So then the car leaves and the cat is in the middle of the road staring directly at my car and i'm like okay i'm backing up i'm gonna go a different route because this cat is pissed and it's in the way and it's never gonna move uh so i was like you know what this is a very weird and spooky time of year because if that happens in like july maybe it's not as unnerving but when it's the week of halloween when you've got a full moon around the corner it felt just a little bit scarier And so those two things, you talking about doing a Halloween-themed episode, but not knowing what I was going to do, and me getting literally stared down by a cat to the point where I backed my car up and drove away from the cat. Uh, I was like, you know what? This is a spooky time of year. And there is a movie that I think, well, that that I've kind of had in the back of my mind as something that we should 
eventually talk about because its origins start in much the same place that the origins of this podcast did. So obviously, Brooke, we met in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We had a radio show together after you convinced the radio uh, executives to let this guy that was working in sales just kind of help you out in the air for some reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know why you did that, but I love you for it. Uh, And it was great. Uh, So that's where this podcast started, albeit in a little bit different form. I've always known that that is also where the genesis of the movie Halloween began as well. Yes. Not at a radio station, just in Bowling Green. Not at a radio station. Yeah, just in Bowling Green. So not at that radio station. That'd be very weird. Uh, We would have made our podcast way spookier if we were somehow connected to Halloween. (laughs) Uh, So I decided, you know what? This week, I want to follow your lead because I thought it was a great idea. And I have learned that when I follow Brooke's great ideas, usually things turn out better. (laughs) So I said, I'm going to do a Halloween-focused A-side. And so I started to dig into... Halloween. And this is the the movie, not not the cultural significant holiday. And it's not something that I was super eager to do. Brooke, you know, I I don't sleep well. I never have. I have had night terrors since I was a kid. I, I know we've talked about this past. Like I have, like I wake up three to four times a night with a start. I mm-hmm. mean, I've scared previous relationships. I've scared my dog on a regular basis. Like <laughs> when I am like thrashing and getting up and rolling around and trying to find a comfortable spot. Uh, I know that I've been rolling around too much when my dog, who is not a cuddler, will turn and put her head right on my leg and be like, dude, you need to stop. She's like, dude, stop moving. I'm trying to sleep. Yeah, she's like, I'm trying to sleep here and you keep rolling around. So I'm just going to put my head on your leg to let you know that I don't want you to move again. And I do my best not to move. Uh, but then usually she gets annoyed and goes to the couch and sleeps on the couch. So pretty much par for the course for most of my relationships, but still doing very well overall. But Halloween movies, horror movies have always creeped me out. But I knew, I remember being told back when I lived in Bowling Green that John Carpenter went to Western Kentucky University and he first got the idea for the movie from an experience that he had when he was a student at Western Kentucky. I didn't realize how much of a connection he had to Bowling Green uh, until I did some research for this podcast. So it turns out, even though John Carpenter was born elsewhere, at the age of five, he moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky. His father was the head of the music department for years. And he himself grew up in Bowling Green and then went to Western Kentucky University as a student. And while he was at Western Kentucky University, they visited a psychiatric hospital in town. Uh, And he uh, met... Are are we in the A-side and I didn't know? Oh yeah, we're in the A-side now. I'm sorry. Oh. I just went right into it. I'm so excited that I just like... jumped right on in. Okay. Yeah. I, I gave no warning. I did not signal. I did not stop and collect $200. I just went. Uh, We're in the A-side now. Sorry, everybody. That was abrupt. Uh, But the A-side tonight is about the movie Halloween and a lot of its connections to Bowling Green, all the things that I've learned over the last couple of days doing some research about a movie that I honestly had not seen until last year. Like I am turning 40 in January and it took me almost 40 years to see one of the most well-known independent films ever but i didn't know it was an independent film ever at all none no no i don't i don't do horror movies i don't do slasher movies and in fact the only reason i saw this movie was last halloween i was at a local brewery and it was playing on the tv in subtitles only so there wasn't the creepy music there wasn't any of the screaming exactly so i was like okay i'm gonna watch this i'm gonna sip on my beer and I'm going to watch this movie uh, and I'm not going to get scared because there's a lot of people around having a great time and that will help me not be scared. And also I can't hear anything. It's just the visuals. So uh, last year I finally watched it. I finally decided that I wanted to learn more about it last week. And it's kind of fascinating how this thing came to be. So John Carpenter, when he was a student at Western Kentucky University, visited a psychiatric hospital and he met this adolescent teen who he said completely freaked him out. He had this sort of soulless stare. Uh, he was uh, he was in the he was clearly very medicated at the time. Uh, but he said that that experience, just looking into this young man's eyes, 
made him wonder about all the possibilities that could go with that. And it became sort of the jumping off point for him to eventually write this story of Michael Myers. Now, John Carpenter's dad was a musician and John Carpenter himself was a musician and played in many of the same little bars and honky tonks in Southern Kentucky that I'm sure that you've probably been in for a radio event and I've been in for a radio event and also to boot scoot my boogie and dance and play, do karaoke and whatnot. But he became a filmmaker almost by accident. He was at Western Kentucky University and then transferred to the University of Southern California and then dropped out. But while he was there, he started to get into film. And he eventually made uh, some short films, which got the eye of a couple of directors and even George Lucas, who eventually hired him to be uh, to help with special effects for a little movie called Star Wars. But his first big, and I would I say big in a you know, relative sense, uh, movie was uh, Attack on Precinct 13. And he did all the music for that movie. And I had no idea, like John Carpenter is always referred to as his filmmaker, as, you know, this sort of 70s, 80s god of horror and action. But he was first and foremost a musician. And he did all the music for, like, he picked out the music and wrote some of his own for Assault on Precinct 13. And it did so well that these producers came to him and they were like, hey, we have, a, we have this idea about a horror movie and we want you to do it and we want you to write it. And all we have is this sort of like slasher idea about this person killing babysitters, which, I mean, that's pretty, pretty thin when it comes to a plot. Mm-hmm. So John Carpenter and his girlfriend at the time, uh, and I'm going to double check her name because I hate when I get names incorrectly. So forgive me here. Uh, her name was Deborah Hill. He and his girlfriend got together and they decided to write the script for at the time, a movie that was called The Babysitter Murders. And they wrote the script in 10 days. The producers were like, hey, that's great. Uh, here's a budget of $300,000, which even for the 1970s was not a lot of money for a movie. Right. They were like, this is all we got. Make, make it work. Uh, we think you can do it. Uh, here's your script. And we don't like the name The Babysitter Murders. And the producer said, hey, why don't we take advantage of the fact that Halloween is super spooky and have all these murders take place on one night on Halloween? Uh, and then the producer was like, okay, that was a great idea. Now you make it work. So they re kind of reconfigured things and came up with the movie Halloween, where all these murders of babysitters take place in one night. The movie was filmed for $300,000, which, like I said, was virtually nothing at the time. And we talked last last episode about two actors who had played Sherlock Holmes, both of those actors were also considered for the Dr. Loomis character in Halloween. Oh, wow. uh, so Peter Cushing, who was in Star Wars as Grand Marf Tarkin and also played uh, Sherlock Holmes before, mm-hmm. and Christopher Lee, who uh, is widely known as more like Saruman from uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, but also Count Doku from Star Wars, he actually went on record saying that turning down the role in Halloween was one of his greatest regrets because his agent turned it down without showing him the script because they didn't have any money really to pay the actors. So out of that $300,000 budget, they went out and they hired actors. The only one that really made anything resembling some coin was the gentleman who took the role of Dr. Loomis. And uh, he was uh, Donald Pleasance, was paid $20,000 for five days work. And Christopher Lee turned that down because he was like, that's not enough money. Uh, Peter Cushing didn't even, you know, didn't want anything to do with it either. But he really becomes the hero of the first Halloween, we think, because that's how the script originally was seemed to be. The breakout star was going to be the doctor who tracks down Michael Myers, spoiler alert, and is part of the- Only for you. Only for me, I know. I'm sure the movie came in 1978. So probably anyone who may listen to this has got an idea that what happens. But for me, it's, it's relatively new. Uh, he also went to hire the rest of the cast. And of course, this was Jamie Lee Curtis's first movie. Mm-hmm. And Scream Queen. Yes. And she has become like she embodies the female heroine within a horror movie, probably 
in like most people like that is the ultimate like slasher flick heroine who's trying to survive uh however i didn't realize this because again i'd never really seen the movie until last year and hadn't looked into it at all but as i'm reading some reviews and doing some research john carpenter at first was not interested in jamie lee curtis as his lead role he didn't want her playing laurie stroud uh he was trying for some other actresses but then he realized that her mom janet lee was in maybe the most famous horror slasher movie of all time Mm -hmm. in psycho and so he said okay well i can't get the people i can't get the actress i want so instead we'll hire jamie lee curtis because people will be like hey her mom was in this other movie where people got stabbed so we should pay attention to it a little bit jamie lee curtis had a huge like case of imposter syndrome she was convinced she only got the role because her mom was in another movie where people got stabbed she didn't think that she was doing a good job. The movie is filmed out of order, like many movies are. So she asked for a terror index or a fear index of which scene. Because if you're filming a scene that happens in the first 15 minutes versus the first 45 minutes versus the end of the movie, the character who basically spends the entire movie being scared and running around, her fear should grow throughout the movie. But if you're filming that out of order, how do you know how scared I'm supposed to be? So she came to John Carpenter and said, hey, let me know on a scale of one to 10, how scared I'm supposed to be in this scene. So at the beginning of every scene, he would tell her what her fear level was and really work with her to say like, okay, you gotta be super scared right now, or we need more screens, we need less screens. And he did the exact opposite with one of the seven seven people who played Michael Myers. So Michael Myers in the movie is actually played by seven different actors depending on what scene you're in, Mm -hmm. which seems crazy because you watch the movie and he's just the same the entire time. You're like, whatever, that's just that guy because he's wearing the the mask the whole time. The main actor, the one who played uh, Michael Myers the most, kept coming up to John Carpenter. He's like, so can you give me some like background on the scene? Like, how is my character feeling? What, how should I act? And he's like, "Uh, your goal is to get from point A to point B, show nothing. And that kind of is the entire Michael Myers character and we didn't like it's become a meme it's become like this running joke where Michael Myers never moves quickly but he always catches people who are running mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. he's walking the entire time but somehow he's always catching up to you uh, but that was kind of the the idea Carpenter said is like I want Michael Myers to feel entirely out of place like not only does he not seemingly function on the morality of humanity he's also like just kind of working on a different level. Like he does not running, he's not chasing, he's never emotional, he never speaks. It's just he continually keeps coming and he's this sort of like force of nature as opposed to a character. So of the seven actors that played Michael Myers in the original Halloween, uh, one of them was actually the co-writer of the film, Deborah Hill. When there's young Michael, she plays young Michael uh, picking up something. Uh, you can see that it's her hands, which are very well manicured. Uh, when there is the kid who actually gets shown on screen is a six-year-old actor. There is a gentleman named Tony Morin, who is him. the face. Oh, you have? Yeah, he came to the studio. Is he, is, oh, tell me, okay, tell me more about that. Well, he cussed on air, so there's that. He's oh. like, He's like true New York kind of dude and like very, I mean, he goes to all the cons and he's a nice dude, like really a nice dude. And, and he enjoys the fact that he is the face of Michael Myers in the original. Also side note, met James Jude Courtney, who is Michael Myers in the reboot or the, the newest, the Halloween that came out in what, 2018. And the one that was supposed to come out this year that has been pushed back. He's also a really nice dude, Mm -hmm. huge, like six, five very intimidating but oh yeah like one of the nicest guys ever see i i didn't even realize that which is kind of crazy <laughs> now i'm a little weirded out <laughs> uh, so he he's he's the guy whose his face is shown um nick castle is the one who spent most time playing michael myers walking around he was the guy who was told uh when he asked for direction he's like what's my motivation here and carpenter's like your motivation is to get from that spot to that spot 
And he's like, well, that's just not very helpful. Uh, there was a stuntman, James Winborn, who portrays Michael Myers when he falls out a window. Uh, at one point, spoiler alert, and not good, not a trigger warning probably, but bad news. Um, there's a dog trainer who plays Michael Myers when in a scene he kills a dog, which I, makes total sense. Like, of course, you would have the dog trainer do it because the dog knows it and it's going to work out well. Um, and then there was also uh, a production designer who plays Michael Myers in a closet scene. So this film was literally like, okay, who can, who can play this role right now? What do we need? How do we do it? How can we get this done as quickly as possible? Uh, so they filmed it in California. The Halloween itself is said to take place in Illinois. So they had to, and they did it in spring. So you're, you're filming a movie called Halloween in the spring in California. So you're going to have to create fake leaves and they would paint, they painted these leaves so they would look fall colors and use them in a scene. And then the production crew would all have to run around and gather up the leaves because they had to use them again. Hmm. They couldn't, fi- they couldn't find any pumpkins because it was April in California. So they had a really hard time finding pumpkins to be in the scenes. Uh, they actually got a bunch of people who were neighbors of one of the filming uh, locations for the scene where the kids are running around in Halloween costumes. Mm-hmm. Those are all just people from the neighborhood. They're like, Hey, you want to be in a movie? Uh, can you put your kid in a Halloween costume and walk around? Uh, it was completely off like shoestring budget. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was quoted as saying, everybody did everything. Of like, course, you know, the one mask point, part of uh, it too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was getting to that. I was okay. saving that one because that's that one. I actually knew before Okay. Uh, because it's connected to one of my favorite characters ever so uh, i'll get to that in a second but uh jamie lee curtis who was the you know leading lady of the show uh would be helping out with costumes she would be holding lights uh she would be working a mic when she needed to there's one scene where one of the other babysitters gets killed in the shower and so they every time they they filmed the scene she would get covered in fake blood and then they would have to clean up and redo the scene to shoot it again And so Jamie Lee Curtis took over helping the other actress clean up because the makeup artists were being like, they were trying to rush and being too rough. And so this fake blood that they were scrubbing off was actually causing the actress pain. And and Jamie Lee Curtis is like, fine, I'll help. You guys go over there. We'll get it done. So you've got the leading lady of the, of the movie out there with a sponge, helping one of her co-stars scrub fake blood off of their body and then reset for a scene where they get killed in the shower again and again and again. Uh, that's not something that happens on a lot of modern movie sets. And then, of course, the mask. So originally, according to a couple sites that I read, the costume designer had found a sort of clown's mask. And they felt it was too over the top and too obviously a clown. And the whole idea for Carpenter of Michael Myers was that he wasn't so much a person as he was a thing. And in fact, in the script, he's, his character is not mentioned, it's not referred to in the script as Michael Myers. And even in the credits to the original Hall- Halloween, his character is not called Michael Myers. It's referred to as the shape mm-hmm. with the idea that this entire time, Michael Myers isn't a person as much as he is the embodiment of evil. And so they're like, well, we can't have him have a clown mask because that is too obviously something. So we need to find a mask that obscures his face because seven people are going to play him and also gives us this idea of anonymity and still sort of human, but something just off. So the costume designer goes out and he buys a mask at a local costume shop uh, for a Halloween costume. And then he paints the entire thing, this sort of ghostly white with a hint of blue and widens the eyes and messes up the hair and that becomes the shapes mask or michael myers as we know him today the most terrifying thing now that i know and i've seen the movie and i can't unsee it is the mask that they originally bought that they then painted and and modified was a william shatner james t kirk mask from star trek Mm mm-hmm and once I learned that, I could never not see it when I saw Michael Myers. And that was that just added to the uncomfortability. Because growing up, like Captain Kirk was like a member of the family. 
like I saw him on a weekly basis watching a lot of movies and old TV shows. It is very upsetting to think that he became the, that he was the source material that eventually became this very scary, terrifying mask, uh, which does exactly what it was set out to do, which is, it seems just human enough, but also slightly off and otherworldly and ethereal. So this movie was filmed for $300,000, 20000 of which went to one actor. So basically they had $280,000 left to make a movie. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis only got $8,000 to be the leading lady in the movie. It went on, and again, this is not something that I knew at the time and kind of blew me away. When I think of like the most successful indie films of all time, I had never considered, never knew that Halloween was an independent film. It was produced by two guys who wanted to make a movie who had $300,000. John Carpenter made it work. He cut corners where he could. He wrote all of the music for it because he was the, the son of the director or the head of the music department at Western Kentucky University. He himself a musician. He said the opening theme, the theme to Halloween, which is iconic at this point and has been considered one of the most famous movie themes of all time, he said, I wrote it as if a six-year-old had just learned to play the piano. And this was the first song that they tried, they learned to play. And it is haunting and weird and crazy. And he actually, I had no idea that a lot of his work he has music in because music was his first love. So this $300,000 movie went on to gross in 1978, $47 million. That's like buying a lottery ticket and winning twice. It's like one of those double down moments. Like you hit all the numbers plus the Powerball plus like the the extra bonus or something. Right. That is insane. I had no idea it was an independent movie. It spawned, I think at this point, there are 13, maybe 15 sequels. Like you said, in 2018, they rebooted it. In the early 2000s, uh, Rob Zombie rebooted it a couple times. Uh, I, I had remembered that there was Halloween H2O or Halloween 20 years later that came out in 2000 mm -hmm. with Josh Hartnett involved and Jamie Lee Curtis back again, but not back again. Now she's back again, again. Yes, uh, she is. So it kind of blew me away. And well, she I'm does sure, all She her was own in the 2018 stunts. one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. She now, does Jamie all Lee Curtis stuff. is a, a, a badass. Um, that um, was one of the things that James I mean, said about her. Like he said, she does all her own stunts and he's, She's she's like hit me don't don't hold back and it's like wow yeah I mean I will always have a soft spot spot in my heart for Jamie Lee Curtis because uh, True Lies came out in like 1994 and I had just hit puberty uh, so it that was that was a big moment for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you've never seen that movie there it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and it's amazing and it's just so 90s over the top action movie uh, but Jamie Lee Curtis is the best thing about that movie. It's uh, Jamie Lee, Arnold, Elijah Dushku, if you are a big Buffy Angel or a Firefly fan. Uh, Bill Paxton. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's got a lot of good people. Uh, Tom Arnold as like the funny buddy. Mm -hmm. uh, so highly recommend it. We could, do, we could do an entire episode on True Lies later. But uh, I was very happy. And thank you, Brooke, for pushing me in the direction. Thank you, Brooke, and that scary cat that I met in the street mm -hmm. uh, for pushing me in a direction to learn more about a movie that honestly scares the living daylights out of me. Uh, and I didn't have the guts to watch until I was nearly 40. So um, if you have not seen the original Halloween, uh, this weekend might be the perfect time to check it out. Uh, and as you do, hopefully you'll notice a few things that we talked about today. Oh, and back to the Bowling Green thing. Uh, there are two locations mentioned in the script Smith's Grove and Russellville that are direct callouts to locations in and around like around Bowling Green. Yes. Uh, the hospital that the shape Michael Myers escapes from is in Smith's Grove. Uh, and then in the updated version, the one that came out in 2018, all of the sheriff's uh, vehicles are Warren County sheriffs. That you still haven't seen yet. I still haven't seen, but I read about it. Like I'm working my way up. So if it took me 40 years to see the original Halloween, I'm probably going to see the 2018 remake when I'm about a hundred. Okay. So. All right. Just so you know, that that if that movie had been made today, the amount of money you said $47 million, it would be 207, almost $208 million today. Yeah. 
that's crazy. And three hundred thousand dollars is like I don't know. I'm not good with math, but you invest three hundred thousand, you get forty-seven million. That's a pretty good return on investment. I feel like that's better than your your local T bond. That that's a lot of money for a film that costs virtually nothing to make, and no one got paid any money except the one dude who took the role after everybody else turned it down. Well, I'm glad you watched it. Yeah, and I'm glad that I learned more about it. And I think the next time I see it, uh, I'll maybe even turn the sound on. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I prefer to watch everything in subtitles anyway. You catch so much more. <laughs> All right. So is that the A-side? That is the A-side. Yeah, because if I talk any more about scary movies, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> All right. So for the B-side, since it is Halloween time, Halloween. <laughs> Halloween is definitely one of those days that you can find some seriously wild stories about. So I'm going to do something a little different. Normally we focus on one story. So I've condensed a couple and I want to share it with you. A a murder macabre collection, if you will, for Halloween. First, we're going to start with the man who killed Halloween, or maybe we could call him the real life candy man. So on Halloween in 1974, eight-year-old Tommy O'Brien returned to his home in Houston from a night of fun trick-or-treating. His father, Ronald, gave him one last piece of candy because, you know, every kid, when they come home from trick-or-treating, they're like, can I just have one more piece? And parents are like, oh, fine. Here, go to bed. <laughs> Load him up with sugar and send him off to bed. That's, that's great, right? Yeah, it totally works. So his dad gave him one last piece of candy. It was a pixie stick, which, I mean, I am not eight years old and I still love pixie sticks. If someone was like, here's a pixie stick, as long as it's sealed, I'm like, good, cool. All right. So I would did- say like, that is, that's giving like the most sugar candy. <laughs> that's not just one more piece. That's like, oh, here, have an atomic bomb. <laughs> so Tommy did what any eight-year-old would do, or most of us really, and he ate the pixie stick. And within moments, Tommy was vomiting and they had to rush him to the hospital. Well, unfortunately, Tommy didn't make it and he passed on the way to the hospital. Ronald got to the hospital, changed his story multiple times. It was found that Ronald was the culprit. Ronald was responsible for Timothy's death. He had poisoned the pixie stick with potassium cyanide. You see, Ronald was in debt, not like a little bit, not like 5,000, not like 10 Gs. He's like $100,000 in debt. And he had taken out a life insurance policy on his children. He gave his daughter and three other children the tainted candy in an effort to cover his tracks. But none of the other kids ate the candy. So obviously he didn't cover his tracks. No. in June of 1975, he was found guilty and he was given the death penalty by lethal injection. Uh, he was executed in March of 1984. And of course, what happens every Halloween, parents check their kids' candy. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll be to see if it's been tampered with. And the start of that is from Ronald O'Brien. I feel like true justice would have been to give him tainted pixie sticks, make him eat like five of them. Yeah, let that be the death penalty. Yeah, seriously. Make him suffer like he let he let that little boy suffer. Well, and you remember that, right? Like it, I'm sure when you were a kid, your parents would take your you get home and they take the bag and like go through it like they were like CSI checking right. everything. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why like, parents to this day still check candy. It's all from this. It all mm-hmm. stems from this. No, I was not alive in 1974. Thank you, Adam. No, I said when we were kids, we our parents were still checking, you know, many years after 1974. <laughs> uh, Lots of years. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so yes, that is the effect. Kids to this day are not allowed to eat their candy until it has been checked because of Ronald O'Brien and his horrific attempt to pay his insurance or his debts back and he killed his kid. Jeez. Speaking of family murder... Let's talk about William Lisk. William and his family, they're from um, Sandusky, Ohio. So in 2010, 16-year-old Devin Griffin came home from a Halloween party. 
and he starts playing video games after attending church. He spent the previous night over at a friend's house. And, you know, like teenage boys do, he gets on the game. He's not paying any attention. You know, it's in the morning and he's playing for hours. And then finally, about 1.30, he's like, man, it's real quiet in here. Like, like a little too quiet in my house because he's a teenage boy playing video games. It takes teenage boys forever to notice anything, especially when they're playing video games. So he went around to check on his family members. And according to the Sandusky Register, Devin, once he got into his parents' room, he found that his mom and stepdad were in bed and they had their comforter, their maroon comforter pulled up over their heads. So he starts talking to his mom and he saw that she was covered in blood. Now, mind you, it's Halloween. So at first he was like, oh man, this is a prank. Man, all right, mom, you got me. Mm-hmm. Well, they realized it, it wasn't a prank. So Devin runs and calls police. When police arrive, they find one more body. They find the body of Devin's brother, Derek. Police learn that the murderer was Devin's stepbrother, William B.J. Lisk. B.J., as known by most, had a criminal record going all the way back to 2002. While he was on house arrest, his dad, Bill, had to call the police on him because B.J. had threatened to harm himself. When police arrived, B.J. attacked the police. In 2004, B.J. escalated from self-harm to harming others. In October of 2004, he got into a fight with his stepmom, Susan. Two months later, he was charged with criminal assault and robbery. He had hit Susan and stolen her car keys. William had bludgeoned his older stepbrother, Derek, with a hammer. He shot his father, William Lisk, five times. And then he raped and shot his stepmother, Susan. The order of events with Susan are unknown. At some point, he raped and he killed her. At the time of the murder, BJ was not living at home. His father had actually kicked him out after he had previously attacked Susan while she was in the shower. William was eventually diagnosed with a schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. He pled guilty to three counts of aggravated murder to avoid the death penalty. In 2015, he was found dead in his jail cell from a self-inflicted wound. Neighbors speculated that it was William who had tortured and killed their pets over the years, even though he had never been caught in the act. You know, they say it it escalates from the pets. Also, check your kid, because if they have any kind of like major head, like a major conk on the head, you might want to take them to the doctor or and or a psychiatrist, because lots of these serial killers started off with some kind of head injury. Hmm. Wetting the bed. It's another one. Late into life, head injuries, killing pets and animals. You might have a serial killer. Well, and going after a stepmom in the shower, that's classic psycho. Yes, very much so. Now we move on to, well, I'm not even going to give you the name yet. I'm going to tell you the story. Okay. So you have three roommates, Leslie Mazzara, Adrian Insagna, and Lauren Minza. The three ladies spent the, the night passing out candy to trick-or-treaters in their Napa Valley home on Halloween night of 2004. Around 11 p.m., all three ladies decided to call it a night, and they headed off to their respective rooms. Well, one more visitor was set to come and see them that evening. It was not a trick-or-treater. This visitor had been hiding and waiting. Once it was dark in the house, the visitor crept in through an unlocked window on the first floor in the kitchen. Lauren awoke to a scream from upstairs and she ran out of the house and she hid in the backyard until she heard footsteps receding from the house. Once the footsteps were gone, she ran back into the house thinking uh, things were safe. So she went upstairs to check on her friends. Leslie and Adrian, both 26, had been stabbed. Lauren tried to call 911, but the line had been cut. She grabbed her cell phone and she fled from the house in fear. So Leslie was a South Carolina native, former beauty queen. She was Miss Williamston who had moved to Napa Valley just earlier that year to be closer to her mom. Adrian was an avid volleyball player and she was extremely competitive. 
Adrian was friends with a woman she worked with called Lily Prudholm. Lily and Adrian became really good friends, and Lily had a boyfriend turned husband named Eric Matthew Koppel. They all hung out numerous times. Eric, to the surprise of police, actually turned himself in. Now, let me go back. Adrian unfortunately died before she could be transported to the hospital. Leslie, once 911 responded, was pronounced dead on the scene. Now, Eric turned himself in because police had released some information about cigarettes that they had found outside the house. He thought it was just a matter of time before they pinned it on him. So he confessed on September 27th of the following year, 2005, and he confessed to the murders, but he has never, ever revealed why he committed the murders. He didn't know Leslie Mazzara before the night of the murder. They had never met. Some people speculate that Eric was jealous of the friendship between Adrian and Lily. And on the night of the murders, he killed Leslie first, thinking she was Adrian, and then realized his mistake and self-corrected, if you will. Eric is serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole on the charges of two counts of first-degree murder. He agreed to life in prison in exchange for the death penalty to be taken off the table. He waived his right to an, uh, an appeal and his right to talk about the case to anyone except members of clergy, which means no to media interviews ever. So, so we'll we never may know. never know why Eric Matthew Koppel committed those murders. It is a mystery. It is a Halloween night mystery. I mean, and that feels straight out of Halloween or, or Black Christmas or any of the slasher movies. It just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, literally out of nowhere. He waited for them to turn off their light and snuck into their house and stabbed them. If that's not Michael Myers, I don't know what is. Sure, I mean, sure sounds like it. I mean, they weren't babysitters, but it sure sounds like the babysitter murders. Well, they were passing out candy to kids. So, I mean, close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I was gonna take my dog for a walk when this was over, but I think I'm just gonna stay inside. <laughs> oh. Poor Lorelai. Well, we, we did a good 20 minute walk before because I was kind of worried that when we talked about some of this stuff, I'd be like, nope, I don't want to go outside. <laughs> so we've, she's already done all of her, her business for the evening. So we're just not going to have a bonus walk. <laughs> now all I need is for one of mine to just start barking at nothing like they did yesterday. I oh, looked yeah. out, they just looked out the back door and they were like barking. And I'm like, what are you barking at? And I look out and there's literally nothing there. So then I was freaked yeah. out for quite some time. You're like, you're, you half expect one of them to turn to you and be like, do you like scary movies? Right. Yeah. The call is coming from inside the house. Ugh. So let's end off on how about a Halloween? You know what? I'm not going to tell you either. You're going to have to just wait for the story. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So when Peter and Betty Fabiano went to sleep on Halloween night, 1957, we're taking it back, baby. They thought that the trick-or-treating was done for the night. In the middle of the night, they received one more trick-or-treater. A lot more trick, if you will. Hmm. The doorbell rang and Peter got out of bed and brought the candy to the door. He opened the door to a woman wearing a mask. In her hand, she held a paper bag. She lifted the bag. She shot the gun she had inside. She shot him straight in the chest, just below his heart. Peter died instantly. The masked woman jumped into a waiting car and sped off. At first, police have no clues whatsoever. They have absolutely no idea who could have committed this crime. Then they catch a, a break. A gun, a 38 special, had been found in a downtown department store of all places. Well, they test it, and after ballistics, they discovered that it was a match for the bullet that killed Peter Fabiano. So they searched the records to see who the gun belongs to, because of course, as long as it has a serial number, you can trace it. They found that the gun mm -hmm. belonged to a woman named Golden Pizar. She was a lab assistant at the Children's Hospital. Now, this is in Los Angeles. On November 12th, Golden was arrested. 
She confessed to the police, telling them everything. She told them that it was actually the idea of a woman named Joan Rappel. Joan had coerced her into killing Peter, even though she didn't even know who Peter was. She had no clue. Golden told police that they planned the murder over the course of weeks. They had even driven to Peter's house and Joan pointed him out to her so she could recognize him when it was time to do the crime. You see, Betty and Joan had met at the salons, one of the salons that Peter owned. Joan was an employee. Peter and Betty, well, they hit of a, a bit of a rough patch in their marriage and Betty moved out. Betty and Joan became quite good friends. Wink, wink. Hmm. In the 50s, you know, you got to say it like that. Wink, wink. They were yeah. real good friends. Wink, wink. Real close. <laughs> Roommates for a brief period of time. But Betty eventually decided she was going to make her marriage work. She was going to try again. So she left Joan, which pissed Joan off, obviously. <laughs> Evidently. Yeah. According to the Los Angeles Times, police eventually arrested Joan, who was convicted of second degree murder, and Golden was convicted to five years to life in prison. Betty was never tried for any connection in her husband's death. So there you go. That is the night of Halloween murder. Huh. No, they're okay. not quite as in-depth as we usually go, but it's Halloween. So I wanted to do something a little different. And there's tons and tons more that we could have delved into, but I know you can only take so much, Adam. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm reaching my, my wit's end. I will say that by taking them like this, it's just like usually the, the B-side is like a king-size candy bar. Mm-hmm. And by having size. all these smaller ones, these are bite-sized ones. These are literally the, the candy bars you get at Halloween <laughs> because nobody gives out the big ones. So we're just doing that, but with murder stories. <laughs> you got bite-sized murder stories for Halloween. Bite-sized murder stories. Yeah. <laughs> just put them in your bag, have your parents check them before you listen to the podcast. <laughs> Make sure there's no pins or razors in them. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Do you remember when like parents were literally taking like uh, metal detectors and like running them over kids like candy bags to see if there were going to be razor blades in them. Mm-hmm. You can still That's do that in some crazy. places like take them to the hospital and run them through x-ray machines. Oh, they'll x-ray them? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know why my favorite holiday is St. Patrick's Day? Beer? Well, yeah. But also, nobody like tries to kill anybody on St. Patrick's Day, really. I mean, there's oh, some fisticuffs. But usually I'm by sure the end. there's some St. Patrick's Day murders. Don't make me prove you wrong. Well, that's okay. Well, we can talk about those in about four months. <laughs> Five months. <laughs> up, up here in Minnesota, we got shut down. Like the state got locked down uh, the day before St. Patrick's Day. So there's been this running joke that like by the time we actually get to have St. Patrick's Day again, in St. Paul especially, which is a Irish Catholic town, uh, it's going to be a heck of a St. Patrick's Day. Oh, man, it's going to be a big old blowout. Yeah. And so I super look forward to 2023. You're just going to skip over 2022? Well, it doesn't seem like it's going to be done by 2021. So I'm just, you know, planning ahead. All right. They just, they just locked down Chicago again. Ah. That happened today. <sighs> well, it is going to be a very COVID Halloween. So make sure yep. you're uh, wearing your mask, washing your hands. Look, if bats, what's the bat? Not fruit. What's the other one? Dracula bat. What's that? What's that? Fruit bat? No, I said not that. Vampire bat. So if vampire, vampire bats, bat. oh, if vampire bats know to social distance when they're sick, we as humans should know to social distance when there's a pandemic. Social distance. It's not that hard. Wear your mask. It's really not that hard. And we've got some cute ones on our website. Yeah, some really cute. Buy on more our masks. Website. Yes, absolutely. Masks are the new fashion. I have so many masks. I love it. Like when this is all over, I'm, My, gonna like, uh, I'm like, what am I going to do with all these? Oh, we'll, we'll always wear masks. Masks are ne- now they're going to be like, this is going to change fashion in the same way that JFK not wearing a hat mean, meant that no men wanted to wear hats. Anymore. We're all going to wear masks as fashion from now on. Okay, if you say so. it's just my personal fashion opinion you know obviously when you need fashion opinions you come to adam (laughs) uh if you are loving the show and you would like to support it you can head on over to 
buy me a coffee slash a side b side pod and uh, we got some cool perks over there you join and become a member there's some awesome exclusive stuff for you there of course you can check out our brand new website a side b side podcast dot square dot site some cool merch like masks and uh sweatshirts Mm -hmm. and some of our sweatshirts t-shirts yeah some of them are even for good causes you know if you purchase portion of that goes to different charities so you can check that out as well also we would love if you'd head on over to apple and just say hey this show's cool <laughs> are you giving and out candy like no i i usually don't give out candy uh, i'm one of those people that turns all the lights off and hides under the covers until it's the next day um so luckily i'm also in an apartment building where it's not really a thing that you can do so that's nice i don't have a doorbell so big plus for adam gotcha. uh, i am working on saturday so i will probably bring a bunch of candy and give it to uh, my coworkers and my guests on saturday uh but other than that i will probably be avoiding the concept of halloween as much as possible as i am wont to do well at least you'll eat some candy not that candy corn though, because that's trash. That it just belongs in the garbage. Yeah, I, candy corn is the fruit cake of Halloween. And and if candy corn is so good, why do we not see it in stores all year long? Because it's garbage. Like for the people who are like, people are like, oh, candy corn is great, and they're like, but is it though? Because if it was, then capitalism says that stuff would be right next to the stinkers, and it's not. Although people say pumpkin spice lattes are good, which I think those are gross too. Yeah, people love pumpkin beers, and I can't do that. Nope. You know what's really bad? Pumpkin spam. Pumpkin spice spam. Who thought of that? Somebody that only had pumpkins and spam. (laughs) They were just like, "Uh, let's throw it together. Like, what else? (laughs) Can't make it any worse, right? Oh, man. All right. So that there you go. There is um, all of our sources, of course, will be on our website, and you can check that out. And there you go. That is another edition of... A side, B side. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Brooke. Everybody stay safe. This is Kevin Armstrong, your host for Movie Battle. Each episode, we take two films and put a super fan of each against one another to decide which one is best. The only rule we have is that you come correct. If you're interested in being a guest on Movie Battle, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A-Side B-Side Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, we'd appreciate it if you'd head on over to Apple and leave us a rating or a review. And make sure you come back next Friday for another episode.